Part One, Chapter Six C of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard. Reading by Julia Albot. Part One, The Man in the Case. Chapter Six C, Devil's Work concluded it was close upon one o'clock in the morning when jimmy dale stopped again this time before a fashionable dwelling just off central park and here for perhaps the space of a minute he surveyed the house from the sidewalk watching with a sort of speculative satisfaction a man's shadow that passed constantly to and fro across the drawn blinds of one of the lower windows the rest of the house was in darkness. "'Yes,' said Jimmy Dale, nodding his head. "'I rather thought so. "'The servants will have retired hours ago. "'It's safe enough.' He ran quickly up the steps and rang the bell. A door opened almost instantly, sending a faint glow into the hall from the lighted room. A hurried step crossed the hall, and the outer door was thrown back. "'Well,' "'What is it?' demanded a voice brusquely. It was quite dark, too dark for either to distinguish the other's features, and Jimmy Dale's hat was drawn far down over his eyes. "'I want to see Mr. Thomas H. Carling, cashier of the Hudson Mercantile National Bank. It's very important,' said Jimmy Dale earnestly. "'I am Mr. Carling,' replied the other. "'What is it?' Jimmy Dale leaned forward. "'From headquarters, with a report,' he said, in a low tone. "'Ah!' exclaimed the bank official sharply. "'Well, it's about time. I've been waiting up for it. Though I expected you would telephone rather than this. Come in.' "'Thank you,' said Jimmy Dale courteously, and stepped into the hall. The other closed the front door. "'The servants are in bed, of course.' he explained, as he led the way toward the lighted room. This way, please. Behind the other, across the hall, Jimmy Dale followed, and close at Carling's heels entered the room, which was fitted up, quite evidently regardless of cost, as a combination library and study. Carling, in a somewhat pompous fashion, walked straight ahead toward the carved mahogany flat-top desk, and, as he reached it, waved his hand. "'Take a chair,' he said, over his shoulder, and then, turning in the act of dropping into his own chair, grasped suddenly at the edge of the desk instead, and, with a low, startled cry, stared across the room. Jimmy Dale was leaning back against the door that was closed now behind him, and on Jimmy Dale's face was a black silk mask. For an instant neither man spoke nor moved. Then Carling, spare-built, dapper in evening clothes, edged back from the desk and laughed a little uncertainly. "'Quite neat. I compliment you. From headquarters with a report, I think you said.' "'Which I neglected to add,' said Jimmy Dale, "'was to be made in private.' Carling, as though to put as much distance between them as possible, 
continued to edge back across the room. But his small black eyes, black now to the pupils themselves, never left Jimmy Dale's face. In private, eh? He seemed to be sparing for time, as he smiled. In private, you've a strange method of securing privacy, haven't you? A bit melodramic, isn't it? Perhaps you'll be good enough to tell me who you are. Jimmy Dale smiled indulgently. My mask is only for effect, he said. My name is Smith. Yes, said Carling. I'm very stupid. Thank you. I... He had reached the other side of the room now, and with a quick, sudden movement, jerked his hand to the dial of the safe that stood against the wall. But Jimmy Dale was quicker. Without shifting his position, his automatic, whipped from his pocket, held a disconcerting bead on Carling's forehead. "'Please don't do that,' said Jimmy Dale softly. "'It's rather a good make, that safe. I dare say it would take me half an hour to open it. I was rather curious to know whether it was locked or not.' Carling's hand dropped to his side. "'So,' he sneered, "'that's it, is it?' the ordinary variety of sneak thief. His voice was rising gradually. Well, sir, let me tell you that. Mr. Carling, said Jimmy Dale, in a low, even tone, unless you moderate your voice, someone in the house might hear you. I am quite well aware of that. But if that happens, if anyone enters this room, if you make a move to touch a button, or in any other way attempt to attract attention, I'll drop you where you stand. His hand, behind his back, extracted the key from the door lock, held it up for the other to see, then dropped it into his pocket, and his voice, cold before, rang peremptorily now. Come back to the desk and sit down in that chair, he ordered. For a moment Carling hesitated, then, with a half-muttered oath, obeyed. Jimmy Dale moved over and stood in front of Carling on the other side of the desk and stared silently at the immaculate, fashionably groomed figure before him. Under the prolonged gaze, Carling's composure, in a measure at least, seemed to forsake him. He began to drum nervously with his fingers on the desk and shift uneasily in his chair. And then, from first one pocket, and then the other, Jimmy Dale took the two packages of banknotes, and still without a word, pushed them across the desk until they lay under the other's eyes. Carling's fingers stopped their drumming, slid to the desk edge, tightened there, and a whiteness crept into his face. Then, with an effort, he jerked himself erect in his chair. "'What's this?' he demanded hoarsely. "'About ten thousand dollars, I should say,' said Jimmy Dale slowly. "'I haven't counted it. "'Your bank was robbed this evening at closing time, I understand.' "'Yes!' Carling's voice was excited now, the color back in his face. "'But you—how? "'Do you mean that you are returning the money to the bank?' "'Exactly,' said Jimmy Dale. "'Carling was once more the pompous bank official.' He leaned back and surveyed Jimmy Dale critically with his little black eyes. Ah, quite so, he observed. That accounts for the mask. But I am still a little in the dark. Under the circumstances, 
it is quite impossible that you should have stolen the money yourself and i didn't said jimmie dale i found it hidden in the home of one of your employees you found it where in moyne's home up in harlem moyne eh carling was alert quick now jerking out his words how did you come to get into this then his pal double-crossing him eh i suppose you want a reward we'll attend to that of course you're wiser than you know my man that's what we suspected we've had the detectives trailing moyne all evening reach forward over the desk for the telephone i'll telephone headquarters to make the arrest at once just a minute interposed jimmie dale gravely i want you to listen to a little story first a story what has a story got to do with this snapped carling the man has got a home said jimmie dale softly a home and a wife and a little baby girl oh that's the game then eh you want to plead for him carling flung out gruffly well he should have thought of all that before it's quite useless for you to bring it up the man has had his chance already a better chance than any one with his record ever had before we took him into the bank knowing that he was an ex-convict but believing that we could make an honest man of him and this is the result and yet no said carling icily you refuse absolutely jimmy dale's voice had a lingering wistful note in it i refuse said carling bluntly i won't have anything to do with it there was just an instant silence and then with a strange slow creeping motion as a panther creeps when about to spring jimmy dale projected his body across the desk far across it toward the other and the muscles of his jaw were quivering his words rasping choked with the sweep of furry dad held back so long broke now in a passionate surge and shall i tell you why you won't your bank was robbed to-night of one hundred thousand dollars there are ten thousand here the other ninety thousand are in your safe you lie ashen to the lips carling had risen in his chair you lie he cried do you hear you lie i tell you you lie jimmie dale's lips parted ominously sit down he gritted between his teeth the white in carling's face had turned to gray his lips were working mechanically he sank down again in his chair jimmie dale still leaned over the desk resting his weight on his right elbow the automatic in his right hand covering carling you cur whispered jimmie dale there's just one reason only one that keeps me from putting a bullet through you while you sit there we'll get to that in a moment there is a little story first shall i tell it to you now for the past four years and god knows how many before that you've gone the pace the lavishness of this bachelor establishment of yours is common talk in new york far in excess of a bank cashier's salary but you were supposed to be a wealthy man in your own right and so in reality you were once but you went through your fortune two years ago counted a model citizen an upright man an honor to the community what were you carling 
What are you? Shall I tell you? Row, gambler, leading a double life of the fastest kind. You did it cleverly, Carling, hit it well, but your game is up. Tonight, for instance, you are at the end of your teether, swamped with debts, exposure threatening you at any moment. Why don't you tell me again that I lie, Carling? But now the man made no answer. He had sunk a little deeper in his chair, a dawning look of terror in the eyes that held, fascinated, on Jimmy Dale. "'You cur,' said Jimmy Dale again. "'You cur, with your devil's work. A year ago you saw this night coming, when you must have money or face ruin and exposure. You saw it then, a year ago, the day that Moyne, concealing nothing of his present record, applied through friends for a position in the bank. Your co-officials were opposed to his appointment. But you, do you remember how you pleaded to give the man his chance, and in your hellish ingenuity saw your way, then out of the trap? An ex-convict from Sing Sing? It was enough, wasn't it? What chance had he? Jimmy Dale paused, his left hand clenched, until the skin formed whitish knobs over the knuckles. Carlin's tongue sought his lips, made a circuit of them, and he tried to speak, but his voice was an incoherent muttering. "'I'll not waste words,' said Jimmy Dale, in his grim monotone. "'I'm not sure enough myself that I could keep my hands off you much longer. The actual details of how you stole the money to-day do not matter, now. A little later, perhaps, in court, but not now.' You were the last to leave the bank, but before leaving you pretended to discover the theft of a hundred thousand dollars. That, done up in a paper parcel, was even then reposing in your desk. You brought the parcel home, put it in that safe there, and notifying the president of the bank by telephone from here of the robbery, suggesting that police headquarters be advised at once. He told you to go ahead and act as you saw best. You notified the police, speciously directing suspicious to the ex-convict and the bank's employee. You knew Moyne was dining out tonight. You knew where, and at a hint from you the police took up the trail. A little later in the evening, you took these two packages of banknotes from the rest, and with this steamship ticket, which you obtained yesterday, while out at lunch, by sending a district messenger boy with the money and instructions in a sealed envelope to purchase for you, you went up to the Moines flat in Harlem for the purpose of secreting them somewhere there. You pretended to be much disappointed at finding Moyne out. You had just come for a little social visit to get better acquainted with the home life of your employees. Mrs. Moyne was genuinely pleased and grateful. She took you in to see the little girl, who was already asleep in bed. She left you there for a moment to answer the door, and you, you— Jimmy Dale's voice choked again. You plot on God's earth, you slip the money and ticket under the child's mattress. Carling came forward with a lurch in his chair, and his hands went out, pawing in a wild, pleading fashion over Jimmy Dale's arm. Jimmy Dale flung him away. You were safe enough, he rasped on. The police could only construe your visit to Moyne's flat as seal on behalf of the bank. And it was safer, 
much more circumspect on your part not to order the flat searched at once but only as a last resort as it were after you had led the police to trail him all evening and still remain without a clue and besides of course not until you had planted the evidence that was to damn him and wreck his life and home you were even generous in the amount you deprived yourself of out of the hundred thousand dollars for less would have been enough caught with ten thousand dollars of the bank's money in a steamship ticket made out in a fictitious name it was prima facie evidence that he had done the job and had the balance somewhere what would his denials his protestations of innocent count for he was an ex-convict a hardened criminal caught red-handed with a portion of the proceeds of robbery he had succeeded in hiding the remainder of it too cleverly that was all carling's face was ghastly his hands went out again again his tongue moistened his dry lips he whispered isn't isn't there some some way we can fix this and then jimmy dale laughed not pleasantly yes there's a way carling he said grimly that's why i'm here he picked up a sheet of writing paper and pushed it across the desk then a pen which he dipped into the inkstand and extended to the other the way you'll fix it will be to write out a confession exonerating moyne carling shrank back into his chair his head huddling into his shoulders no he cried i won't i can't my god i-i won't the automatic in jimmy dale's hand edged forward the fraction of an inch i have not used this yet you understand now why don't you he said under his breath no no carling pushed away the pen i'm ruined ruined as it is but this would mean the penitentiary too where you try to send an innocent man in your place you hound where you some other way some other way carling was babbling let me out of this for god's sake let me out of this carling said jimmy dell hoarsely i stood beside a little bed to-night and looked at a baby girl a little baby girl with golden hair who smiled as she slept carling shivered and passed a shaking hand across his face take this pen said jimmy dale monotonously or this the automatic lifted until the muzzle was on a line with carling's eyes carling's hand reached out still shaken and took the pen and his body dragged limply forward hung over the desk the pen splattered on the paper a bead of sweat spurting from the man's forehead dropped through the sheet there was silence in the room a minute passed another carling's pen travelled haltingly across the paper then with a queer low cry as he signed his name he dropped the pen from his fingers and rising unsteadily from his chair stumbled away from the desk towards a couch across the room an instant jimmy dale watched the other then he picked up the sheet of paper it was a miserable document miserably scrawled i guess it's all up i guess i knew it would be some day moyne hadn't anything to do with it i stole the money myself from the bank to-night i guess it's all up thomas h carling 
From the paper, Jimmy Dale's eyes shifted to the figure by the couch, and the paper fluttered suddenly from his fingers to the desk. Carling was reeling, clutching at his throat. A small glass vial rolled upon the carpet, and then, even as Jimmy Dale sprang forward, the other pitched headlong over the couch, and in a moment it was over. Presently Jimmy Dale picked up the vial, and dropped it back on the floor again. There was no label on it, but it needed none. The strong, penetrating odor of bitter almonds was tell-tale evidence enough. It was prussic, or hydrocyanic acid, probably the most deadly poison and the swiftest in its action that was known to science. Carling had provided against that some day in his confession. For a little space, motionless, Jimmy Dale stood looking down at the silent, outstretched form. Then he walked slowly back to the desk, and slowly, deliberately picked up the signed confession and the steamship ticket. He held them an instant, staring at them, then methodically began to tear them into little pieces, a strange, tired smile hovering on his lips. The man was dead now. There would be disgrace enough for some one to bear, a mother perhaps, who knew, and there was another way now, since the man was dead. Jimmy Dale put the pieces in his pocket, went to the safe, opened it, and took out a parcel, locked the safe carefully, and carried the parcel to the desk. He opened it there. Inside were nearly two dozen little packages of hundred-dollar bills. The other two packages that he had brought with him he added to the rest. From his pocket he took out the thin metal insignia case, and with the tiny tweezers lifted up one of the gray-colored, diamond-shaped paper seals. He moistened the adhesive side, and, still holding it by the tweezers, dropped it on his handkerchief and pressed the seal down on the face of the topmost package of banknotes. He tied the parcel up then, and, picking up the pen, addressed it in printed characters. Hudson Mercantile National Bank, New York City District messenger, some way, in the morning, he murmured. Jimmy Dale slipped his mask into his pocket and, with the parcel under his arm, stepped to the door and unlocked it. He paused for an instant on the threshold for a single, quick, comprehensive glance around the room, and then passed on out into the street. At the corner he stopped to light a cigarette, and the flame of the match spurting up disclosed a face that was worn and haggard. He threw the match away, smiled a little wearily, and went on. The Gray Seal had committed another crime. End of Part 1 Chapter 6 C